Good morning. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. It's good to worship the Lord together in song, isn't it? I always am so blessed to highlight in my week to just worship and praise God together with you guys. Hey, uh, we, if you are new around here, you need to know we are in the middle of a series of messages entitled Good News. It's the gospel according to the book of Romans, which is without question, in my mind, the most... Uh, theologically complex and doctrine-filled book in the entire New Testament. And so as we dig into Romans, we're going to have to sort of put on our wading boots and dig in deep because there's a lot in there. So I feel some need to sort of recap every time we begin. So let me just start by saying there has been bad news and there has been good news, right? We've been uh, in the first four chapters and Paul has been unfolding for us uh, over the course of these four chapters, this picture of the bad news that leads to good news. And then he begins chapter five with one of our favorite Bible words. So if you want to go ahead and get ready and go to Romans chapter five, that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. And you're going to go to Romans chapter five, and uh, you're going to find that the very first word there in Romans chapter five is the word, therefore. And whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we're supposed to ask, what is it? Oh, you guys are good. You you get an A. When the word therefore begins, especially a chapter or a paragraph or a section in your Bible, the point that God is making is, listen, I've just been developing an argument. I've just been making a point, and there there is a consequence to the point that I've been making. It leads somewhere. So let me tell you where I've been leading with all of this. So we've been in the first four chapters, and we've been hearing about the bad news that man is broken and unable to save himself, that we are all lost in our sin, that uh, even though uh, the best of us might do our very best to be a good person, there is nobody who is good enough to measure up to God's standard of holiness. And we've been hearing all of this bad news. But last week, finally, we got past the vegetables and onto the dessert, and we said there is some good news. The grace of God is amazing, right? Somebody should write a song about that. Grace of... I can hear a tune in my head. I think we can do this. Um, So we finally get to chapter five, and it begins with the word, therefore. And um, before we even go beyond the word, therefore, let me do what I can. Instead of going back and recapping all the verses that we've seen in these first four chapters, instead, let me try to give you a visual, an experience. Imagine, if you will, that you are a hardened criminal. You've been committing crimes for a long time and your crimes have gone from petty crimes to serious crimes to now even capital crimes and finally you were caught. And you were taken to court and you were tried and you were found guilty. The evidence is overwhelming and there's nothing they could do except find you guilty and sentence you to death. And as you probably know, if you're in California and you are sentenced to the death penalty, that means you're going to spend a very long time living in prison. And so there you are. You find yourself every day on death row. Every day, you're in your cell the entire day, 23 hours a day. One hour, you get to go out into this little tiny fenced-in area where the sun can hit your face. But other than that, your entire life is spent in this cell 
and the clock is ticking and the ticking is profound and it rings in your head because you know that with every second that goes by in the ticking clock, you get one second closer to that day when you're actually going to be executed. There is no grounds of appeal for you. You've exhausted all of that. You've been here for years and you've tried every kind of explanation, every kind of justification. You've looked for every legal loophole, but you can't find anything. And your lawyer has thrown his hands in the air and there's no grounds for appeal and there is no hope. Just a clock ticking on the wall. And with each passing day, life gets more hopeless. With each passing day, life gets darker. And so you lay there in the middle of the day on your bunk with nothing else to do except think about how miserable all of this is and contemplate how you wish you had stayed on a different path and wonder how you got off the path in the first place. And as you're laying there on your cot thinking about these things, suddenly you hear that sound of the latch on your cell door clicking as if to open, and you know it's not exercise time, and so you open your eyes and think, what is that? Suddenly you hear the sound of the bars sliding as the door to your cell opens, and you think, I better check this out, so you sit up, open your eyes, and look toward the cell door, and there you see your attorney. You haven't seen him in a long time, because all of the appeals have already been exhausted. And now there stands your attorney and he's got this smirk on his face. And you say, what are you doing here? He says, I have news for you. You've received a presidential pardon. And you sit up and and you think, "A a presidential pardon? But how? I don't know the president. I don't deserve a break. How in the world have I gotten a presidential pardon? And then you realize it's got to be a joke. It's got to be a trick. There's got to be a hook here somewhere. And so you say, okay, what do I have to do? And your attorney looks at you and he says, you just accept the offer and follow me to freedom. And that day, your hopelessness turns to hope. And your death turns to life. And that day, you're given a new chance, and you walk out of prison free. Now, hopefully, most of you can't really relate to this. Hopefully, most of you have never been that dark, that hopeless, and that lost. And what Paul has been telling us for four chapters is that though you haven't known you were that hopeless, though you haven't known it was that dark, though you haven't known you were that lost, you were that lost all the time until the pardon came. And it had nothing to do with you. It didn't have to do with your rights. It didn't have to do with your appeals. It didn't have to do with your arguments or your justification. It was just a gift. That's what Paul's been trying to tell us. So far, we've heard about the bad news of our guilt. And we've heard something now about the good news of God's grace. But today, what we're going to try to do is we're going to start exploring the question that so many of us love to ask, which is, so what? Okay, I was lost in my sin. Okay, it was impossible for me to save myself. And okay, Jesus came and paid the price for my sin and offers me this gift of freedom. So what? What difference does it make? 
how does this grace of God actually work in my life? What can I do to maintain this grace and make sure that I hold on to it? Uh, can anything happen to take this grace away? What if I sin again? Do, do I go back to death row? And how can a just God ever give a pardon like that anyway? All of those are questions that Paul addresses in the book of Romans. So when we're talking about the gospel in the book of Romans, don't be thinking in very narrow terms, which is your loss, Jesus died, and you can have eternal life. It's much deeper than that. And we're gonna start digging into the depth of that. So back in Romans chapter five, let's go ahead and see. Now we got through one word. Let's see if we can get through one verse. Therefore, he says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of this we don't need to spend a lot of time on because we talked about this last week. We defined these terms. Remember, if you weren't here last week, remember the word justified is a legal term. It means that you have been pronounced not guilty. It is the condition in which that person finds himself when he has received the presidential pardon. It's not that you didn't commit the crime. It's that you are legally not held accountable. You are deemed legally not guilty. And the word justified um, is one of those big $5 theological stained glass words. So let me give you a way to think about it that has always helped me. Think of it like this, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's the position that you get put in because of Christ. He says, therefore, having been justified, and by the way, how does that justification take place? He says right here, by faith. And again, we talked about this at great length last week. If you weren't here, go back and, and watch the video or listen to the podcast. The point is this, your justification is a gift of God. It comes by grace through faith. It, it's not a matter of me fixing myself. It's not a matter of, of paying my dues. It's not a matter of religious activity or good works or self-sacrifice or whatever I think is gonna help me pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's a matter of pure grace. And that grace that comes from God is activated by faith apart from works on my part. Remember, Romans chapter one, verse 17 tells us the righteous man shall live by faith. The life that we have in Christ comes by faith. Now you're going to need to keep your finger in Ephesians, I mean in Romans chapter 2, but I want you to turn over to the right a few books to the book of Ephesians. It's right after Galatians and before Philippians. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and this is a very well-known passage. We visit it often here at Grace Fellowship because our church is sort of named based on this concept. So I want us to go back and see verses 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read it to you as you follow along. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It gets a little bit confusing, right? Verses eight and nine say it's all by grace, it's all by faith, and it specifically says not by works. And then verse 10 says for good works. 
So what is it? Is it works or is it not works? It's so important for us to get this straight because all of those words are the correct words, but if you get them out of order, you've completely missed it. You see, we are saved by grace through faith apart from works, but that faith that saves always leads to a changed life. So the true saving faith is always evidenced by good works. It's always followed by good works. So when you're asking yourself, hey, what is my standing with God? Don't ask yourself, am I sinless? You ain't. Ask, don't ask yourself, am I faultless? You ain't. Ask yourself this, do I see evidence in my life that God is in the process of doing a changing work? Am I becoming someone different than who I was before I met Jesus? Is he changing my heart? Is he changing my motives? And are my actions following those things? None of us is perfect, and we're gonna talk more about that as we go through Romans, but we have to keep this order straight. It's God's grace that gives us the faith to believe. And when we exercise that faith to believe, that leads to salvation. And that salvation leads to a changed life that is marked by good works. So the order is really important. If we mess it up, it all falls apart. And I need to say this because too many people today think that in order to somehow be accepted by God, I have to start the process of the good works. I have to impress them. I have to earn. They think I have to work harder. I have to, I have to do better. I, I have to earn my place in God's heart. I have to clean up my act. And once my act is cleaned up, then maybe God will give me access to him. And he goes, no, it's just the opposite. All of your good works are like a pile of filthy rags, the Bible says. They add up to nothing. The best I can do is not good enough. God has to do the good work. He has to activate the faith, uh, the grace. He has to give me the faith so that I can be saved, so that my life can be changed. So we gotta look for evidence of salvation in our own lives by the change in our hearts, the change in our minds, and the change in our behavior. It's all by God's grace. That's good news. And that's what we've been learning for the last four chapters. And what is the result of that justification by faith that comes as a free gift from God? Well, certainly what should come to our minds, first of all, is eternal life. The scripture says that by his grace, through our faith, he gives us the gift of eternal life that we can live forever. But the concept of eternal life as it's given to us in the New Testament is much broader than many of us give it credit for. The theological concept of eternal life is not just life that lasts forever because I can think of some kinds of life that I wouldn't want to last forever, right? It's not just that your life goes on and on and on. It is the quality, not just the quantity of life that God gives us. And so that's what we're gonna look at a little bit today in Romans chapter five. So if you go back, you're probably gonna, we're gonna go back to Ephesians in a minute, but go back to Romans five now and join me there in Romans five. And verse one says, therefore having been, see we're still not done with verse one, sorry. Therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Romans 1 explained how we all have rebelled against God, how, how we chose to become enemies of God, how we placed ourselves under his wrath by our intentional choice to rebel against God. And now we get to chapter five. Now let's skip ahead. I've, I know we're still not done with verse one. Skip ahead to verse six. Chapter five, verse six. For while we were still helpless, you might want to highlight the word helpless. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Not the good folks. He died for us. He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Remember the bad news was the wrath of God. The bad news is that because of our sin, we're all under the wrath of God. The good news is that having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. That was the standing ovation moment. You missed it. <laughs> having been reconciled by his death, having been justified, the scripture says, by his blood, we shall now be reconciled to him, pass through the wrath of God, no longer be enemies, and we shall be saved by his life. God knows your heart. You didn't really mean it the first time. So because of his free gift of grace, everyone who puts their faith in him can be set free and have peace with God. And you might, you might read those words, peace with God, and just go right through it and not think that much of it. It doesn't have much meaning unless you understand what he's been saying for four chapters, which is you are an enemy of God. And while you're yet sinners, he dies for you and gives you peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't ignore the significance of the word Lord. When we truly put our trust in Christ, when we truly turn from our sin, when we truly activate the faith that he gives us to believe, it has a life-changing effect. Jesus doesn't just become our savior, he becomes our Lord. And that's such an important word because uh, in, in today's vernacular, let's just substitute the word boss. Lord means boss. It means he's in charge. It means your life has become his life. It means you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. When we truly put our trust in Christ, that's what happens. And that means we surrender the control of our lives to him. So it is no longer I who live, Paul says in Galatians, but Christ who lives within me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. So true saving faith does not make you perfect. It does not make you sinless, this side of heaven. 
but it does change the trajectory of the path of your life. You turn from your sin and you turn to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. And, And sometimes we preachers get so excited about this good news that we present it in a way that is really not accurate and gives the wrong impression. See, we have to understand that to be saved, to be in Christ, to be a child of God, to have eternal security, however you want to say that, is not just an intellectual decision that you make. It is not just the intellectual agreement that Jesus is God. It's not just praying a prayer that will keep you out of hell and learning the password into heaven or, or, or raising your hand in church and saying, I want to be saved. It's not about getting baptized and joining the right church. It's not about getting all of your doctrine straight and all of that kind of stuff. To become truly a child of God is about the transfer of the ownership of your life into the hands of Jesus who says, I will be your savior, but I will also be your Lord. If you're in Christ, you're not your own. And your life purpose is to glorify God in every way that you possibly can. Are Christians perfect? No. Far from it. But if you have true saving faith, Jesus really becomes Lord of your life. Your life is found in him. You live for his glory. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 7 of Romans. Believe me, Paul is going to tear that apart for us. But for now, we're only through one verse. So let's go back to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. When we stand in this amazing grace, we can exult. Exult means to rejoice. The the picture is someone jumping up and down for joy. The picture is that child who opens the gift they've been praying they would get on Christmas morning and they pull it out and see that they got it and they begin screaming and jumping up and down and rejoicing and hugging anybody who's nearby and telling all their friends, you can't believe what I got. That's the idea of exulting, and that's not a word we use in our common American English very much. To exult, to rejoice, to be overwhelmed with happiness, to jump for joy, to celebrate. He says we can exult in this hope. So in Christ, we move out of hopelessness and we stand in a place of hope. And what difference does that make? It makes an eternal difference. But it also makes a practical difference in the right here and now. Look at verse three. And not only this, but we also exult, same word, in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, so now we're back to some bad news. There's that word we don't like, tribulation. And again, it's kind of a big word. We don't really throw that word around in the U.S. these days too much. The word tribulation means problems, trials, sufferings, difficulties. 
And that same word that describes the child celebrating over the Christmas gift is used to describe the way we should celebrate our suffering. Hallelujah. So we're back to some bad news. But guys, this comes as no surprise. Who among us, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, has lived a trouble-free life? Life this side of heaven is not trouble-free. And whoever stinking preachers stand in front of a television camera and point their finger and tell you that if you just have enough faith to send a check to their ministry that you can live a life without trouble, to hell with them. It's a damnable teaching. It is not biblical. The biblical teaching is that you and I will have tribulations. We will have problems. Becoming a Christian doesn't suddenly make your credit score go up. (laughs) Becoming a Christian doesn't suddenly fix your marital woes. It doesn't suddenly get your teenager to start going to class instead of skipping school. It doesn't suddenly solve any of those problems. Life is tough, and it's tough for all of us. Even as a Christian, you're, you're gonna have all kinds of problems. Anybody say amen? amen? Okay. It says, though, that we can celebrate or exult or rejoice even in the midst of those problems. Why? Because now, by his amazing grace and this incredible gospel, we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we always have hope. We we have the assurance, if you will, that God is on our side. Or probably a better way to say that is we have the assurance that we are on God's side. Because God's not interested in joining our side, he calls us to his side, right? So, so, so it, it gives us this assurance that we're not doing this alone, we're doing this with God. The, the, the name Emmanuel is a name given before, long before the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb, that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us that we have God with us. We have peace with God. And that means we have hope because we're on God's side. And guys, peace with God changes everything. And I'm gonna just give you a couple examples. We could do 100, I'll give you a couple. One is it changes my identity. To have peace with God changes my identity. The Bible doesn't say that Christians become soldiers who are just those who fight on the right side now. It says that we have been adopted by the king so that we're now accurately called children of God. Now, I was thinking of how to really drive this home and I was thinking about the incredible ministry of foster care. And as some of you are involved in foster care, been involved in foster care, and your lives have been touched by foster care, foster care is this amazing thing where a child is going through something really difficult and needs some help, and another family comes along and says, listen, we're gonna take care of you, we're gonna meet your needs, we're gonna love you and care for you and provide for you and do all those kind of things. Foster care is an amazing thing. I strongly encourage you to get involved in it if, if you haven't been, but, but there's something even better for that child than foster care, to be adopted. 
How great is it to be adopted by the right family? It's an incredible thing to be adopted and that's the word that scripture uses to describe how God who sends his son to die for his enemies so they can become his children adopts us and makes us children of the king. John chapter one verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That makes us, according to Romans 8, 17, joint heirs with Jesus, that whatever is Jesus's inheritance is our inheritance as he becomes our brother. Romans 8, 15 through 17 uses this description. It says that because we are children of God, because we have been adopted, because we are joint heirs with Jesus, we can cry out, Abba, Father, which is the, which is the traditional way in that culture of saying, Daddy, Daddy. He doesn't just just become our Lord. He doesn't just become a far away distant king. He doesn't just be the creator or the ruler of the universe, but he's your daddy. He's the one whose lap you can crawl into who will give you comfort and safety and will provide for you. He's your daddy. Go back to Ephesians again. Again, keep your finger in Romans. Go back to Ephesians. And we're gonna look at Ephesians chapter one, which is maybe Paul's best description of this throughout the scripture. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse two, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of, his, of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. That's what the adoption looks like. You go from nothing, hopelessness, helplessness to everything, everything you could ever possibly need in the spiritual heavenly places, that your inheritance is secure in the hands of God and nothing can take you away from him. When you respond to the grace of God, you don't just get rehabilitated, you get reborn, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So when you have peace with God, it changes your identity. You go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God with a full inheritance rights. But that isn't all. Peace with God also changes your relationship with suffering. Remember, we talked about how you're not gonna just get a free pass, you're not gonna just avoid suffering, but your relationship with God changes your relationship with suffering. Let's go back to chapter five and look at this again. Um, it, ta it talks in verses three through five about tribulation, problems, trials, struggles, suffering, this is a broken world. God doesn't pretend it's not. One result of that brokenness is that we all have to deal with suffering. We all have to deal with grief. We all have to deal with loss. We all have to deal with pain. 
But because we're children of God, our relationship with suffering and our view of suffering and our understanding of suffering is totally changed. God never allows our suffering to go to waste. Part of walking by faith is realizing that even though God may not cause all of our suffering, he always makes sure to use it. We're gonna talk about that more at the end of chapter eight. But in Romans 5, three through five, it gives us this process. Tribulation brings about or leads to perseverance. If you ever played sports in a competitive way, when I was in high school, I was a competitive athlete, and I remember every year at the beginning of the season, we would have what was called Hell Week. And it wasn't a theological term. It meant that the coaches were going to make you suffer as much as they possibly could because they wanted the weak ones to quit and because they wanted the rest of us to be in shape. As a high school basketball player, I never once had a coach that didn't give this speech at the beginning of Hell Week. Listen, I'm looking at a ragtag group of kids right now. Doesn't look to me like you guys have any ability whatsoever. And I'll tell you this, we're not gonna be the fastest team. We're obviously not the tallest team. We're not gonna be the strongest team, but you know what we will be? We will be in the best shape. And we all go, oh. You know what that means? It means he's gonna start blowing the whistle and you're gonna start running. That's what that means. Because the idea is that in the game, when you get to the fourth quarter late in the season, there comes a time when really it's the team that's physically able to endure that's going to win. And so he says, listen, I allow tribulation in your life, but I will not let it be wasted. It leads to perseverance, or perhaps your Bible says endurance. And perseverance, it says, brings about proven character. You see the progression here? Tribulation, perseverance, proven character. The suffering builds our endurance. The endurance shapes our character. James says something very similar in James chapter one. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I know we all wanna be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, but none of us wants to face various trials. And he says, this is the formula. That maturity that that James calls perfect and complete, that maturity, that strength, comes through various trials. And so God allows those trials, sometimes even sends those trials into our lives. Do you see why it's such a terrible teaching that if you're a Christian, you'll never suffer? If you never suffer, you never grow. Never become the person God created you to be. And so whether it's Paul speaking in Romans or James speaking in James, We would all love to be fully mature, but there is no path to Christian maturity that does not involve tribulations. And by the way, that's true for everybody. It's not just a Christian thing. But for those of us who are in Christ, there's always hope. Take grief. Probably everyone in this room has experienced the grief of the loss of a loved one. The grief, the grief of loss of a uh, valued relationship, the grief, the loss of a dream, whatever the case may be. The scripture says that as Christians, we still grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. 
The peace with God, according to Romans 5, gives us that hope. Our hope is in Christ. So we have tribulation. Tribulation leads to endurance. Endurance leads to proven character. And proven character, according to Romans 5, always leads to hope. Now let me be clear. Let's define the term. We, we say, man, you know, I, I hope the angels win the World Series. Well, good luck. <laughs> you can hope all you want, right? That's not what this word means. This, this word is not synonymous with wish. The, the word is synonymous with confidence, that we have this hope, this confidence, this assurance, if you will, that that our tribulation leads to endurance, our endurance leads to proven character, and the proven character leads to hope, and it says that hope does not disappoint because the blood of Christ has been poured out in our lives, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So if you're in Christ, it's not just that you get to live forever in heaven, it's that right now today you get to live with hope. Because we have peace with God by his grace, we'll endure the troubles, just like everybody else has troubles, but we endure them. And our troubles build endurance, and that endurance shapes our character, makes us mature, and that proven character always comes through with hope realized. And when our hope is in Christ, there's a guaranteed outcome. And that outcome is good. That's why we call this good news. We who were once lost and hopeless enemies of God have been adopted as children of God and made joint heirs with Jesus. Our challenges and our sufferings are just momentary, but the proven character and the hope that is developed through those challenges will last for eternity. So you don't have to be bowled over by the storms of life. Are there going to be more storms in your life? Yeah, there are. I swear I wish I could just go, listen, join Grace Fellowship and agree to tithe. There will be no more storms in your life. (laughs) That just isn't the truth. There's more storms. They're coming. But if you're a child of God, you have peace with God. And that means you can stand confidently by faith because all of the storms that life can bring will never take away the sure hope that you have in Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Lord, we want to say thank you that because of your love for us, not because of our deserving of your love, but because your grace is sufficient. You sent your son to pay the price for our sin who doesn't just give us mercy but even beyond that gives us grace so that we could be adopted as your sons and daughters, children of the king, joint heirs with Jesus. We are so thankful, God, that you have given us all of this. 
And Father, we pray that that now that we can stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, that we would truly put our faith there, that we would truly put our hope there, that we would not be shaken by the storms of this life, that we would walk in joy and a hope and adoration and worship and praise because of who you are and because of what you've done. Lord, your grace is enough and we stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and him alone. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray, amen. When you came in, hopefully you were given one of these cups. Uh, if you don't have one, raise your hand. If you wanna take the Lord's Supper over here, there's somebody who's gonna help you with these. Um, and, and basically, this is a cup that contains some grape juice on one side and a cracker on the other side. Pretty self-explanatory. You don't need a manual to know how to use it. But here's what we're gonna do. I just feel like after all that we've, we've explained about the bad news that leads to the good news, that the appropriate thing is to actually exalt right? To actually celebrate, to actually rejoice. That's the only appropriate response to this amazing grace of God. And so that's why we call it celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is our party. This is our celebration. This is our exaltation. This is our rejoicing. This is us jumping up and down at the gift that we've just opened from God. He says that as, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Remember that he went to the cross and paid the price for us. Remember that apart from his blood, we could never be washed clean. Remember that he gave his body and his blood a sacrifice for us. And so we're just gonna take a minute and I wanna invite you to open the small side, take out the cracker. And, uh, and I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna just share the Lord's Supper together. You can enjoy the cracker and then open the top side and drink the juice. Father, we just wanna say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the awesome gift that we have received. Father, this is us agreeing with you that there's nothing better, there is no one more worthy, there is nothing more valuable than you and the gift of your grace. And we celebrate because Jesus, you did not withhold even your own blood, but you laid down your life to set us free from sin. And we're no longer in the bondage and the shackles of our own sin, but we have been set free because of your amazing grace. And it is with that amazing grace in mind that we exult together as we partake of the bread and the juice. In Jesus' name, amen.